the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to City of God, a podcast of the Center for Public Theology at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. My name is Dr. Owen Strand, and I'll be your host. Join us each week as we engage the city of man with the biblical wisdom of the city of God. Welcome to City of God. Today on the podcast, Joseph Bottom. Joseph Bottom is one of the nation's most widely published and influential essayists. He's published work in journals from The Atlantic to The Washington Post. He's an Amazon.com best-selling author of several Kindle singles, uh, and he's written books, poetry, short stories, song lyrics even. He lives in the Black Hills of South Dakota. He's a contributing editor to the Weekly Standard and holds a PhD, you don't hear this every day, in medieval philosophy. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Well, it's a joy to, to have you on it and to talk with you. I want to especially focus in on your 2014 book, An Anxious Age, The Post-Protestant Ethic and the Spirit of America. I very much enjoyed this text several years ago. I I thought it was, honestly, uh, this isn't podcast puffery, a brilliant critique and one that almost nobody had really offered, especially your major thesis that the main line has disappeared, and that accounts for so much of why America has changed. As I read Culture and Society, uh, Dr. Bottom, I think that that thesis has only come more to the fore since you published the book. Do you think that's accurate? Um, certainly commentary on that book. Um there's a thesis I run through the book, especially the first half, which is about Protestantism. The second half is about Catholicism in America, specifically the attempt of Catholics and evangelicals to provide a substitute for the failing main line mm-hmm. in the 1990s and 2000s. But the first half of the book was a more historical analysis of, of American religion and its role. And I proposed this thesis that what I called the Erie Canal thesis. I called it after the Erie Canal because I thought all of American religious history, somehow all the threads of it passed through upstate New York in the 19th century. Yeah. Uh, but the, the thesis is essentially if you want to understand uh, American society, you need to look at American religion. And if you want to understand American religion, you have to ask yourself, what is happening in Protestantism at this moment. Mm. And to pose that, because I, I feel us as a, you know, even though I'm a Catholic, uh, I feel us as a profoundly Protestant nation. Mm. Uh, and so I asked that question, and the answer I came up with is Protestantism has um, passed through the social gospel movement so profoundly uh, that it doesn't even realize it's religious anymore. Mm. Uh, and that all of the radicalism that we're seeing is actually a form of post-Protestantism. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, and I put that book out in 2015, I think. Uh, and <clears throat> excuse me, the it 
you know, it got nicely reviewed and everything, but it seems to have made a comeback right now. Mm. Uh, uh, it was Ross Douthat in the New York Times who devoted one of his columns recently to the book, mm. of resurrecting the book. And uh, he said, you know, when it, it, Ross and I had debated the book at Georgetown, for instance, when it first came out, uh, but he went back to it and he said, my objection at the time was that it was kind of abstract. Uh, it didn't seem to have any particularity uh, to it. You know, it was just a thesis. Mm. Uh, but but to look at the protesters now and their kneeling and their hand-waving and their singing of hymns in, in ecstatic transport while they wave candles over their heads. Mm-hmm. Uh, and their lives. to look at a lot of this is to see uh, religion being performed by people who don't know that it's religious. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that that thesis uh, or my explanation of uh, post-Protestantism uh, and its religious roots uh, is comes back to the fore, and in fact now has a particular instance by which we can judge the thesis in a way that didn't seem possible in 2015. Yes, things have gotten terrifyingly particular in recent days in in response. Yeah. To what Douthat said there, if you if you want particularity, it abounds. I think along the lines of what you just said about what the writer and commentator Alan Jacobs said recently, namely that wokeness is a kind of secular counter-reformation, something to think through there as a quote. In your book, um, in, in terms that are shockingly um, prescient, about how things have played out. You say in commenting on Rauschenbusch and the social gospel of the early 20th century that sin is the evil of bigotry, power, corrupt law, the mob, militarism, and class contempt. Conversely, uh, this is me speaking to frame this, redemption isn't being saved uh, by faith in Christ as in a traditional Protestant formulation in some form. But redemption, you argue, is essentially an attitude of mind, a personal interior rejection of social evils. I think of how Roger Scruton, as one example, famously identified the central animating conviction of so much 20th century thought as that of resentment, resentment, uh, and, and the Marxist class that was massing in the mid-20th century and making its arguments so powerfully in Europe, for example, to such great effect, resented the existing order. When I read that in line with what you say there about sin and redemption, again, I cannot help but think about our our current moment where sin is effectively uh, societal evil, corrupt law, bad history, even if we can extend it there. And redemption is an is an attitude of mind, as you said six years ago. Isn't that isn't that how people think about how our societal problems are going to be fixed? You need to have the right cast of mind. And that all comes out of Rauschenbusch. And I want to talk about Rauschenbusch if we get a chance, because I'm really fascinated by him. Uh, but let me just say, in terms of resentment, you know, you don't resentment, I think Roger Scruton was thinking of what Nietzsche would call resentment. Mm-hmm. You know, he felt like the, 
the German word for resentment wasn't enough. He had to use a French word <laughs> for it. Uh, and so in the German of Nietzsche, there's this French word, resentment. And it, it, it conveys more for him of this kind of deep welling up of, you know, an attitude toward the world. And of course, Nietzsche, uh, Dostoevsky's Notes from Undergrounder is the classic study of it. But um, that doesn't preclude religion. And I offer you this, you know, American yeah. folk songs, like Robbie George at Princeton uh, is a, you know, was, is a semi-pro banjo player his whole life and mm-hmm. you know, knows the corpus of American folk song. He and Cornell West teach uh, every couple of years at Princeton, teach a course together on American folk music, uh, which is just one of the great American courses I wish I could have taken. <laughs> Me too. Uh, but uh, the... You know, if you look at American folk music coming out of the, the Wesleyan hymns and meeting up with folk uh, melodies out of out of the British Isles and and some uh, African influences as well, although the the influence typically runs the other way from the American folk tradition into the African song to create uh, various later streams of music. But you know, the folk song simply falls into the Appalachian folk song falls into like three categories. So, you know, my, I've lost my love and I'm going to go weep under the willows. Uh, I've, uh, I'm going to get drunk and wrestle a bear is the second one. And the third one is God is going to punish the rich. Mm. And it's very religious that, that theme and it's very resentful. Mm. So that these are not necessarily in contradiction, right? Mm-hmm. That that religious feeling can still, you know, incorporate or allow for at least in some forms resentment. Um, these rich people are, you know, and this comes this is our sense that comes out of a lot of an American tradition, which is that the rich are seldom good and never happy. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is why Richard Corey and E.A. Robinson's uh, poem shoots his brains out. This is how this you know feeling works. Well, we have a religious feeling here that I've, I think I've successfully identified, and it doesn't preclude the resentment that you're speaking of. In fact, in some ways, it's an answer to resentment, mm-hmm. right? You acknowledge the resentment, and then you say, how do we solve it? Well, the elite are the ones you are resentful against. These protesters are in the big cities are not protesting against conservatives exactly. I mean, the conservatives are the boogeyman, but they, you know they're they're directing this protest at something else. Portland hasn't had a Republican mayor I think since something like 1948. Mm. National Review this uh, you know web page every once in a while or this meme of all the big cities and the last time they had a Republican mayor, mm-hmm. and it's hilarious. Right. But where the protests are going on is not against conservatives. <clears throat> it's against a class of people mm. um, that they're resentful of because all of these protesters, the white protesters in particular, the woke people have elite degrees, or at least they have some of the trappings of an elite class, but they don't have any of the real markers of it. They're not worth a hundred billion dollars. They don't have careers, important careers in politics or business. Uh, what they've got is a law degree in a field in which there's too many lawyers right now anyway. Mm-hmm. Their hold on financial hold on eliteness is very tenuous. Their 
they don't think of themselves as a lead in the sense that they have power, but they do think of themselves as something, some class that is sort of elite, but it's elite because it has the right attitudes toward the moral construction of the universe. They think of themselves, I argue, as elect. They have, you know, how they form part of what Rauschenbusch called the vast web that he wanted to create of redeemed personalities. Mm. It's a wonderful phrase, this redeemed personality. Um, how do you know, if we take Max Weber's kind of analysis seriously, which I do, I think Weber's uh, seriousness about religion, it needs to be revived in ways that this whole field of sociology is uncomfortable with. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Weber, in, in several of his analyses of uh, the beginning of the modern age, looks at the world and he says, looks at this history, and he says, religion is driving a lot of this. This, of course, is the famous Protestant ethic in the spirit of capitalism. Uh, but he says, you know, why does capitalism happen? Marx said capitalism caused Protestantism. Weber turns that on his head. He says, no, not at all. Religion caused capitalism mm-hmm. because these people were um, filled with a spiritual anxiety, which is not just are they saved, but how do you know that you are saved? Not the justification question, to use Calvin's language. Well, an older language, but the language that Calvin famously put it in, mm-hmm. not the justification language, but the sanctification language, right? How do you know, how are you saved? And the, the Dutch Reformed answer is um, through faith in Jesus Christ, right? But how do you know that you are saved? How do you manifest your salvation? What, what are the fruits of it that show that you have it? Uh, that's an anxious question. Now, translate that into these post-Protestant terms. What makes you a good person? Well, what makes you a good person in this post-Rauschenbusch world is that you have the right social attitudes, the right attitudes toward the social sins. And how do you know that you are saved? That's an anxious question. Mm. Um, And a previous generation of elites sort of paid lip service to this idea of the social wokeness. Uh, but the, the people in the streets are not putting up with that anymore. They're rebelling against those elites. They're saying you're hypocrites. You're, you know, you're not sanctified. And a lot of what they do are forms of sanctification, like cancel culture. Now, you know, they've always been shunning in different forms, right? From excommunication to uh, actual exclusion from the community. The shunning, you know, which has old roots in the in Jewish tradition, has, you know, continual history in the, Ameri- in the Christian line. Right. But one of, one of the things they say is when the mainline Protestant churches collapsed, their old function in the democracy ceased to be performed. They used to corral a lot of these dangerous ideas. Once they no longer do, they they no longer corral them, they no longer answer those anxieties. So the churches collapse and we get uh, a, um, these demons let loose Mm -hmm. to enter in public life. And, if you think of it in terms of shunning, right, in your church, you're, you're not going to give over the pulpit 
to a visiting Satanist to debate the goodness of Satan. Um, that you know the the, the life of uh, inside the phantom, the, that Latin, wonderful Latin word for temple, doesn't allow that. You don't let the holy of holies be um, used by Satanists. Mm-hmm. Uh, but now that's in the church. That's in the phantom. But for these people now, public life and politics is the temple. That old idea of of this kind of we need to shun this from our church is still holding. It's just the church's public life. So we need to banish these people from public life. We need to cancel them mm. uh, in the same way that you wouldn't let the Satanists speak in, in or debate the Satanists in your church. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's the same idea. It's just the church is now this monstrously large public square aggravated by all the technological changes. Yes, and and along with what you're saying, the enemy is not simply uh Wall Street CEOs, uh politicians, conservatives of various stripes. The enemy actually for many of the protesters on the streets are their own fathers and mothers. Uh their their childhood instructors, the people who are engaged in this society but who are not woke. That's that's what is part of so fascinating about the linkage of wokeness to the concept of a secular elect, uh, which 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 is a, a linkage I think your thesis fosters. I think that I think that's quite quite intelligent and a, and a nice way to put it. I also don't think I fully agree. Um, to some extent, these kids are being dutiful. They're dutiful children. This is a thesis Midge Decker put back in the 70s in a book called um, uh, Liberal Parents, Radical Children. Mm. Uh, that's completely disappeared. I mean, nobody talks about it anymore, which is why I'm sort of grateful for the opportunity to revive this forgotten <laughs> book. But her her argument is... These kids aren't rebelling against their parents. They're fulfilling what their parents wanted. Their parents had a vision of what a good person is. And it was like a, a radical environmentalist. Is a, you know, somebody who's fighting for the environment is a good person. And the kids are just carrying it out the next step. <clears throat> well, this is how great awakenings work. You remember Jonathan Edwards says uh, in the famous letters about the events in Massachusetts, mm-hmm. he says, we began to discern, or we began to see a greater um, discernment, and I can't remember the other verb he uses, uh, and willingness, instructability, or willingness to, to think about these issues all the time among our young people. Mm. And their seriousness, their sense that the parents may have mouthed this and may have really believed it, but you know they didn't really live it. Right. And we need to take the next step. I like Midge Decker's idea that that actually makes them dutiful children, not rebellious children. Yeah. I let me uh, just en- let me engage that briefly, uh, respecting very much the point you're making. I think I, perhaps there's room for further complexity in what we're talking about here. I'm going to guess I'm not a child of the left in in a direct uh, domestic way, 
But I'm going to guess that some parents really do see their kids as making good on the revolutionary wave said parents wanted to surf years back. I think that's true, and I think that's an important point. I also think, though, following developments on various campuses, that there's a kind of older, more traditional leftism that is frankly shocked by how fast things are moving and is surprised to find itself, for example, landing in the cultural penalty box under the banner of sayings like, silence is complicity. So in other words, any failure to, re- to, to join the resistance, any failure to be right there on the front line is effectively not standing for, for what is right. And I think that is shocking a good number of, of folks who would be more centrist or more genially left. And that spirit of, of resentment that we were talking about, however exactly you, you define that in terms of origins or linkage with religion, it, it has, has hardened, concretized, and is moving faster than I think many even would have expected. Even those who, who you're, you're rightly raising were training the rising generation in this kind of body of thought, sort of a religious activism that actually isn't very theological in, intentionally. Right. No, I think that's it. I mean, they're certainly obeying their teachers. You know, that's um, if we look at the penetration of this post-Protestantism into America's educational establishment, uh, it's so deep and so profound that these kids are being dutiful, not rebellious. They're fulfilling what their teachers had preached. Uh, in a way yes. that we shock the preacher, and every once in a while, you know, um, who was it who said of the French, the French Revolution is like Saturn, it always devours its children. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, you know, some of these professors are surprised in the way you just described when the revolution eats them up uh, as insufficiently woke. But even that, you know, that's that's a fulfillment of a line that's been developing for some time, I argue, since Rauschenbusch. Although I would want to defend Rauschenbusch himself uh, because he was a believer and he was profoundly steeped in the Bible uh, and he perceived the problem of the age. The trouble is with what Rauschenbusch did is when you redescribe the Christian message as social, you get, you know, you address certain problems of the age in which he wrote. And remember, this is the age of the Triangle Fire. This is the age of, of social, you know, the abuse of the working class. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he, he goes to New York City to take over a parish there, and he is radicalized by the child funerals he has to perform. Uh, and so you see, he's trying to address the problems of the age. But his way of doing that is identifying sin. The sins that crucified Jesus are uh, social sins. And he will actually sometimes go as far as saying it is meaningless to say that Christ died for the personal salvation of a drunkard in Tennessee who beats his wife. Christ died, Christ was crucified by these seven social sins. 
Mm. There were six social systems. The, the list was like an accordion. Sometimes it would be long, longer and sometimes shorter. Uh, and that's what crucified him. And Christ dies to break the power of these social sins, not to redeem individuals. Right. Exactly. You know, individuals get redeemed through recognition of the, the social sins that Christ died to expose uh, and answer. Uh, and that's, you know, that move has consequences. And Rauschenbusch preaching that to a biblically trained audience um, achieves certain wonderful results. Uh, but the consequences of it are really obvious now, and I think should have been obvious to him up there in Rochester, uh, which are, if Christ is the ladder by which we climb up to a higher ledge of moral understanding, once we're there, we don't need the ladder anymore. Mm-hmm. Right? We're, we're already on the higher ledge. Yes. And it's very easy. I love that, that ladder metaphor, which is a, a metaphor in an entirely different context. I got out of Wittgenstein. Mm. Uh, but that ladder metaphor is very helpful for describing what happens here. Christ is the ladder of higher moral understanding. We climb up, we stand on the new ledge, we see the social sins, and the ladder is, is below us. We don't need it anymore. Yes. And the next generation will you know, stop going to church. Mm-hmm. And then the generation after that will stop bothering with Jesus. Right. They have the redeemed personality without him. Yes, I, th- I think that's right. Richard Whiteman Fox, the biographer of Reinhold Niebuhr uh, and others, has, has made the point that it's not so much that uh, leftist politics sort of overtook the social gospel movement as as t- it's the case that the social gospel movement was always destined to become leftist politics uh, a very provocative thesis but one that has has i think a lot to back it up in terms of what has actually historically played out in america i want to ask you this as well because we have we have just a few minutes before we need to go it's fascinating to me that hofstetter and others have famously defined and very successfully defined evangelicals. I'm an evangelical, clearly in this world, in the Baptist world, uh, as paranoid. Politics and the paranoid style is the title of Hofstetter's famous work that is is influential in framing, especially conservative evangelicals, as paranoid. And you know there can be truth there, depending on who we're talking about and what said individuals are promoting. Nonetheless, it's fascinating to me to think about paranoia in terms of uh, how these great social movements are playing out today. In other words, you think of climate change hysteria, you think of what is happening with these protests in cities, you think of wokeism. It seems very paranoid to me. You've thought a lot about the conservative cast of mind. Uh, You edited First Things for many years, of course, kind of a linchpin of the conservative movement. It strikes me that conservatism, of course— uh, it, it is trying to reform society in different ways. Uh, Buckley's famous stop to, to various initiatives and drives. And yet, conservatism is actually happy to a significant degree with the world as it is. Obviously, there's going to be distinctions, Catholics and Protestants, evangelicals, in terms of what shape that contentment takes. But do you think that's 
Do you think there's anything there to think through? Liberalism as a fundamentally restless, uh, activist, even paranoid mindset versus conservatism as thankfulness, rootedness, restfulness in some form? Well, yeah. <clears throat> if if one allows the, the, the idea that the conservative is perfectly capable of saying we live in a terrible world, mm-hmm. um, but just that, you know, the in conservative circles for many years, it was common to quote a line of Eric Vogelin's about how the greatest danger of politics is when you try to immunitize the eschaton, mm. when you try in, through political means to make the end times happen and build the new Jerusalem. Because it always ends in blood. Uh, you know, if there, if there is, if all we have to do is reset time, and you know, uh, to build the new Jerusalem, then when it doesn't work, well, the answer must be that there are people who are stopping us, so we kill them. Yes. Uh, and it always, it always ends in blood. I do think there are elements of here of both sides. Hostetter was was that was actually a vehicle for him. That essay was a vehicle for him to express his anti-conservative thought. Mm-hmm. But he wrought better than he knew, uh, and that's why we remember the the essay. Um, if you want a nice measure of this that also fits my thesis about these Christian ideas that have escaped the churches and wander around, uh, you know, these demons as demons, mm-hmm. uh, unattached to any limiting principles, I would look at apocalyptic feeling. Uh, which is paranoid in the way that you describe, but it's also very visible on a on a form of the radical left environmentalists uh, who you know they've got this apocalyptic feeling. Yes, and it's also visible on the right among the uh, right is a kind of funny word because I don't actually know many of these people, but uh, the the survivalists mm-hmm. right? they they too have this apocalyptic feeling. And if you think about it, the apocalypse is a wonderfully powerful moral idea that needs to be constrained in the way that the old mainline church has constrained it. Anyways, they gave it meaning, they tied it to other concepts in Christian theology. This is what I mean by constraint. Uh, but let loose, it becomes this powerful political idea, social idea. Because after all, if we're facing the end of the world, there's no time for manners. Manners are, in fact, complicity with evil. There's no time for thoughtful engagement with those who think differently. That's, that's complicity with evil that's going to kill millions because we are facing the apocalypse. There's something wonderfully morally freeing about apocalyptic feeling. If this is the, you know, if, if we're about to face Armageddon, we we are set free in very interesting ways emotionally and our religious emotions. And that the paranoia that you describe uh, is one of the features of that apocalyptic feeling. Yes. So I think you're right, but I even want to extend it to my theological analysis and say when you see it, it's always wrapped up in some post-Protestant a theological term, some Christian idea that has escaped from the mainline churches as they collapsed and entered public life in extraordinarily dangerous ways. Yes. I, I went to I went to Bowdoin College for my undergraduate 
And here again, touching on that that matter we were discussing and even debating a little bit in a very profitable way, is the left fundamentally radical uh, or is the radicalism surprising at least some portion of the left today? I think of professors I had at a school like Bowdoin who were, I'm sh- I mean, I, I could, you can see the statistics. Uh, they, they were out and out left in political terms. There were perhaps, you know, five to six meaningful conservative professors out of a faculty of 150 on campus when I was there in the early aughts. And I just, in terms of what you were just expounding upon, I know you have to go in a minute here. I just think about how so many of them nonetheless led contented lives in Brunswick, Maine, and in some form believed that everybody at Bowdoin was was pursuing the common good and that a place like Bowdoin is supposed to foster dialogue uh, about the humanities and about the good life. And I just think now about what it would be like 20 years after I was at Bowdoin to be a student, at least in a lot of classrooms, and how the curriculum is going to be much more activist. And even if I can use this term, militarized, you think about what happened at Middlebury College a few years back with Charles Murray, how there's there has to be a divide, not simply on a campus like Middlebury, but in American society between those who are are on the left and would broadly support leftism, of course, and those who are radicals. That's a tension that you've brought out not only in your book, but in this conversation. I think it's a tension that is is very much evident in the Democratic Party today. Uh, with, with the radical edge pushing the mainstream very hard and effectively winning, it seems to me. This is a tension, I think, in this anxious age, as you call it, as we wrap up here, that is going to continue affecting American life, I think, in days ahead. Yeah, uh, I think you're absolutely right. This is, you know, in its best form, this old balance of liberalism kind of nodding genially to uh, radicalism. Mm-hmm. In its best forms, it was like your professor said, Bowden. In its more mockable forms, it was what David Brooks described in his first book, uh, you know, as the bohemian bourgeoisie, the Bobos, yes. who are living in paradise. Uh, and that was, he captured something there too, which is the bad form of what you just described, in which these people would say, we need to tear down the whole system. By the way, do you like my new granite countertops <laughs> in the kitchen? Uh, and, you know, that was, those were the Bobos, yes. right? They, they were the bohemian bourgeoisie. They, they perceived themselves as bohemians while they lived, uh, a, you know, an upper middle class life. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they were allowed to do it, David said, because they were living in paradise. Uh, 20 years on, we don't have paradise anymore. Mm-hmm. And suddenly they're exposed and denounced by the young as hypocrites. And the, you know, and which they were, of course. Uh, I mean, the, the young people here are not idiots. They're following out a logic that, that in fact is accurate. It's just a logic that's not going to take us anywhere, and it's going to destroy a whole lot along the way. Mm. Well, that's that's very well said. Thank you for your time. I, I very much appreciate your writing and thinking coming, as I do, from an evangelical Protestant vantage point. I find uh, your cultural criticism stimulating to read 
and I'm I'm thankful for this conversation that I've I've had with you. Uh, Catholics and Protestants are are looking at the current order. I think, um, though we have different convictions on core matters, with with nonetheless shared horror in many respects, and uh, and so I'm thankful for a book like yours from 2014 that I think accounts in a significant way, in particular in the first part, for why we are where we are. Humanity has not ceased to be religious. Our religion, at least in America, in terms of the mainstream, has migrated. It has migrated out of the mainline in substantial form and even out of evangelicalism and Catholicism to a point and has migrated into hard-edged, smash-mouth activism. And that is indeed not a development that uh, that is to be taken lightly. Thank you very much for your time. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to City of God, a podcast at the Center for Public Theology at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. We're so thankful you stopped by. We encourage you to continue to join the conversation at cpt.mbts.edu, the official website of the center. And we encourage you to follow us on Twitter and Facebook as well. Join us in coming days as we continue the conversation on what it means to be the city of God in the city of man. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.